Arthur Pink's Spiritual Growth, and this is, uh, I believe, number 14, I believe. I believe. And we're in the chapter. It's a very long chapter. It's uh, Spiritual Growth, It's Means. And this is where Pink has just been outstanding. Pink, as you know, was an expert in the Puritans, and he's just got a real gift of uh, putting things into modern English that the Puritans wrote that is hard for us to read. And, of course, his knowledge of Scripture is amazing. He that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, John 6.40. Seeing the Son is put before believing as the cause which produces the effect. The more we study and meditate upon the glorious person of Christ and his perfect salvation, the more we realize the everlasting sufficiency of his life and death to save us from all of our sins and miseries. The more will faith be fed and spiritual grace is nourished. So too the more will our hearts be inflamed and our affections drawn out to him. It must be so, for faith worketh by love, Galatians 5.6. The more Christ is trusted, the more he is endeared to the soul. The more we live in sights and views of all he has done for us, of all his office relations to us, the more glorious will he be in our esteem. It is a spiritual view of Christ by faith which removes guilt from the conscience, produces a sense of peace and joy in the heart, and enables the soul to say, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And this knowledge is accompanied by faith and love, so also is it with obedience. 1 John 2, 3. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know no more than we practice. Colossians 2, 6. As ye receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Submitting to his authority, believing his gospel, leaning on his arm, counting on his faithfulness, looking to him for everything, to walk in him means to act in practical union with him. The walk is to be regulated by his revealed will, to tread the path he has appointed for us, to submit to his will is the only true liberty, as it is the secret of solid peace and joy, to take his yoke upon us and learn of his, him ensures genuine rest of soul. But as we uh, only enjoy the good of Christ's promises, as they are received by faith, appropriated to myself and relied upon. So with his precepts, they must be personally taken to it myself and submitted to. Hence we read of the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. So too, they only can be performed by affection. If you love me, keep my commandments. <clears throat> In order to commune with Christ, there must be a spiritual knowledge of him and enacting faith upon him. So the one who most perfectly exemplified the Christian character, Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ was his all-exorbing object, the object of his faith and love. Christ is the one who won his heart, whom he longed to please and honor, whose name and fame he sought to spread abroad, whose example he endeavored to follow. It was upon him he fed by faith, and unto him he lived in all his actions. It was from him he had received a spiritual life, and it was to glorify him that he desired to spend and be spent. All our fellowship with Christ is by faith. It is faith which makes him real, seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews 11.27. It is faith which makes him present, John 8.56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. It is faith which brings Christ down from heaven into the heart. Ephesians 
It is faith which enables us to prefer him above all things and to say, there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Psalm 73, 25. Of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. John 1, 16. The we are those spoken of in verses 12 and 13. In verse 14, full of grace and truth is reference to his own personal perfections. But in verse 16, it is his mediatorial fullness which God has given him for his people to draw upon. The word fullness is sometimes used for abundance, as in the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24.1. But as one of the Puritans pointed out, that is too narrow for its meaning here. In Christ, there is not only a fullness of abundance, but of redundancy, an overflowing fullness of grace. There is a communication of this fullness of Christ to all believers, and they have it in a way of receiving. See Romans 5.11, Galatians 3.2 and 4.5. That which believers receive from Christ is here said to be grace for grace, and by which is meant grace answerable to grace, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Matthew 5.38. Signifies an eye answerable to an eye. Whatever grace or holiness there is in Jesus Christ, there is something in the saint answerable thereto. There is the same spirit in the Christian as in Christ. There is in Christ as the God-man mediator, a fullness of grace which is available to his people. There is laid up in him, as in a vast storehouse, all that the believer needs for time and eternity. Of that fullness they have received regenerating grace, justifying grace, reconciling grace. From that fullness they may receive sanctifying grace, preserving grace, fruit-bearing grace. It is available for faith to draw upon. All that is required is that we expectantly bring our empty vessel to be filled by him. There is a fullness of grace in Christ which infinitely exceeds our fullness of sin and want. And from it we are freely invited to draw. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. John 7.37 Those words are not to be limited to the sinner's first coming to Christ, nor is the thirst to be understood in the restricted sense. If a believer thirsts for spiritual wisdom, for purity, for meekness, for any spiritual grace, then let him come to the fountain of grace and drink. What is drinking but receiving? Our emptiness ministered unto by his fullness. When poor Martha, weighed down by her much serving, fretfully asked the Savior to chide her sister, he answered, But one thing is needful, and Martha hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Luke ten forty to 42 What was that good part which she had chosen? This, she sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word, verse 39. Mary had a a felt sense of her need. She knew where that need could be supplied. She came to receive out of Christ's fullness. And he declared, that is, the one thing needful, for it includes everything else. Put yourself in that posture of soul, that reception of faith, whereby you can receive from him. To be occupied with Christ was the good part, which would never be taken from her. But in this restless age, sitting at the feet of Jesus is a lost art. Instead of humbly recognizing their own deep need of ministering to, of being ministered to, puffed up with a sense of their importance and actuated by the energy of the flesh, they are cumbered with much serving, looking after the vineyards of others but neglecting their own. Song of Solomon 1.6 If the Christian is to make real progress, he must needs be more occupied with Christ as he is the sum and substance of all evangelical truth, that an increasing acquaintance with his person, offices, and work cannot but nourish the soul and promote spiritual growth. Yet there must be constantly renewed acts of faith 
on him if we were to draw from his fullness and be more conformed to his image. The more our affections be set on him, the lighter shall we hold the things of this world, and the less will carnal pleasures appeal to us. The more we spiritually meditate upon his humiliations and sufferings, the more will the soul learn to loathe sin, and the more shall we esteem our heaviest affections but light. Christ is exactly suited to our every case and affections, excuse me, our every case, and divinely qualified to supply our every need. Look less within and more to him. He is the only one who can do you good. Ahore everything which competes with him in your affections. Be not satisfied with any knowledge of Christ which does not make you love uh, you more in love with him and conforms you more to his holy image. Okay, that's the end of the chapter on its means. Now we come to chapter 10, its decline. Roman numeral one. First, its nature. <coughs> that which we are here to be concerned with is that some writers term backsliding. A lucid and expressive word that is not employed so often as it should be, or once was. Like most other theological terms, this one has been made the occasion of not a little controversy. Some insist that it ought not to be applied to a Christian since the expression occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. But that is childish. It is not the mere word, but the thing itself which matters. When Peter followed his master afar off, warming himself at the enemy's fire, and denied him with oaths, surely he was in a backslidden state. Yet if the reader prefers to substitute some other adjective, we have no objection. Others have argued that it is impossible for a Christian to backslide, saying that the flesh in him is never reconciled to God, and that the spirit never departs from him. But that is mere trifling. It is not a nature, but the person who backslides as it is the person who acts, believes, or sins. It is not because the word backslide is a controversial one that we have preferred decline, but because the former is applied in Scripture to the unregenerate as well as the regenerate, to professors as such, and here we are confining our attention to the case of a child of God whose spirituality diminishes, whose progress is retarded. There are, of course, degrees in backsliding. For we read the backslider in heart, Proverbs 14.14, as well as those who are such openly in their ways, and walk. Yet to the great majority of the Lord's people, a backslider probably connotes one who has wandered a long way from God, and whom his brethren is obliged to sorrowfully stand in doubt of. As we do not propose to restrict ourselves to such extreme cases, but rather cover a much wider field, we deemed it best to select a different term, and one which seems better suited to the object of spiritual growth. Okay, remember, David was a true believer, King David. He committed adultery, and then to cover it up, he committed murder. That is a very extreme case of backsliding, but he truly repented. And we have a lot of great psalms that came out of it. Continuing. By spiritual decline, we mean the waning of vital godliness, the soul's communication with the beloved becoming less intimate and regular. If the Christian affections cool, he will delight himself less in the Lord, and there will be a languishing of his graces. Hence, spiritual decline consists of a weakening of faith, a cooling of love, a lessening of zeal, an abatement of that wholehearted devotedness to Christ which marks the healthy saint. The perfections of the Redeemer are meditated upon with less frequency. The quest of personal holiness is pursued with less ardor. Sin is less feared, loathed, and resisted. Thou hast less thy first love, Revelation 2.4, describes the case of one who is in a spiritual decline. When that be the case, the soul has lost its keen relish for the things of God. 
there is much less pressure in the performance of duty. The conscience is no longer tender, and the grace of repentance is sluggish. Consequently, there is a diminishing of peace and joy in the soul, disquietude and discontent more and more displacing them. When the soul loses its relish for the things of God, there will be less diligence in the quest of them. The means of grace, though not totally neglected, are used with with more formality and with less delight and profit. The scriptures have then read more and more from a sense of duty than with a real hunger to feed on them. The throne of grace is approached more to satisfy conscience than from a deep longing to have fellowship with its occupant. As the heart is less occupied with Christ, the mind will become increasingly engaged with the things of this world. As the conscience becomes less tender, a spirit of compromise is yielded to, and instead of watchfulness and strictness, there will be carelessness and laxity. A love for Christ cools. Obedience to him becomes difficult, and there is more backwardness to good, wor- backwardness to good works. As we fail to use the grace already received, corruption gains the ascendancy. Instead of being strong in the Lord and the power of his might, we find ourselves weak and unable to withstand the assaults of Satan. A born-again Christian will never sink into a state of unregeneracy, though his case may become such that neither himself nor spiritual onlookers are warranted in regarding him as a regenerate person. Grace in the Christian's heart will never become extinct, yet he may greatly decline in respect to the health, strength, and exercise of that grace, and that from various causes. The Christian may suffer a suspension of the divine influences on him, Not totally so, for there is ever such a working of God as maintains the being of the spiritual principle of grace or the new nature in the saint. Yet he does not at all times enjoy the enlivened operations of the blessed spirit on that principle. And its activities are then interrupted for a season. And in consequence, he becomes less conversant with spiritual objects. His grace is languish. His faithfulness declines and his inward comforts abate. The flesh takes full advantage of this and acts with great violence. And in consequence, the Christian is made most miserable and wretched in himself. It is asked, Why does God withdraw his gracious operations of his spirit from his people or suspend his comforting influences, which are necessary for their walking in him? Answer may be made both from the divine side of things and the human side. God may do this in a sovereign way without any cause in the manner of their behavior toward himself. As he, <coughs> as he gives five talents to one and two to another, according as it seems good in his sight, so he varies the measure of his grace bestowed on one and another of his people as best pleases himself. Should anyone be inclined to murmur against this, then let him pay attention to his, his silencer. Is it not lawful me for me to do what I will with my own? Matthew twenty fifteen. God is supreme, independent, free, and distributes his bounties as he chooses, in nature, in providence, and in grace. God takes counsel with none, is influenced by none, but worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 As such he is to be meekly and cheerfully submitted to. And that's so true. I mean, I know people um, that constantly struggle with sin and strive and have to fight hard. I know people... They become Christians, and it just seems much easier for them. They just don't, they don't struggle like other people do. Part of it, I think, is uh, people who are raised Christians have an advantage than people who are raised as total heathen swine who are out committing all sorts of sins. 
But uh, what Pink says is so true. And think of Solomon, uh, the great wise Solomon, who gave us the book of Proverbs. Uh, he, he backslid and had a problem with pagan women, pagan wives. But is it not only from acting according to his own imperial right that God withdraws from his people the vitalizing and comforting influences of his spirit? He does so also that he may give them a better knowledge of themselves and teach them more fully their entire dependency upon himself. By so acting, God gives his children to discover for themselves the strength of their corruptions and the weakness of their grace. Though saved from the love, guilt, and dominion of sin, they have not yet delivered, been delivered from its power or presence. Though a holy and spiritual nature has been communicated to them, yet that nature is but a creature, weak and dependent, and can only be sustained by its author. That new nature has no inherent strength or power of its own. It only acts as it is acted upon by the Holy Spirit. In the Lord have I righteousness and strength, Isaiah 45.21. Every believer is convinced of the former, but usually it is only after many a humiliating experience that he learns his strength is not in himself, but in the Lord. It is rather a way of chastisement than in a great majority of instances God withdraws from his people the gracious operations of the Spirit. And that brings us to the human side of things, wherein our responsibility is involved. If the saint becomes lax in his use of the appropriated means of grace, which are so many channels through which the influences of the Spirit customarily flow, then he will increasingly be the loser, and the fault is entirely his own. Or if the Christian trifles with temptations and experiences a sad fall, then the Spirit is grieved and his comforting operations are withheld as a solemn rebuke. Though God still loves his person, he will let him know that he hates his sins. And though he will not deal with him as an incensed judge, yet he will discipline as an offended father, as an offended father. And it may be long before he is again restored to the freedom and familiarity that he formerly enjoyed with him. See Isaiah 59.2, Jeremiah 5.25, Haggai 1.9 and 10. Though God draws not a sword against the erring saints, yet he uses the rod upon them. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then I will visit transgression with a rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will not utterly take from the hem, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone from out of my lips. Psalm eighty-nine, thirty to thirty-four. And we think of, once again of David. His chastisements were ex very, very strong. His son died. He had trouble in his house from that point on. He was betrayed by his own son, who tried to have his own father killed and take over the throne. He had nothing but trouble in his household and heartache. Then it is our wisdom to hear the rod, Micah 6, 9, to humble ourselves beneath his mighty hand, 1 Peter 5, 6, to forsake our folly, Psalm 85, 8. If we do not duly repent, amend our ways, still heavier chastisements will be our portion. But... First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When the Spirit's influences are withheld from the Christian, it is always the safest course for him to conclude he has displeased the Lord and to cry. Job 10.2, show me wherefore thou contendest with me. And the honest Christian usually has no trouble identifying what is the sin that's caused the problem. If you're knowledgeable of Scripture. Second, its causes. The root cause is failure to mortify a dwelling sin, called the flesh, in Galatians 5.17, which makes constant opposition against the spirit or the principle of grace in the soul of believers. A carnal nature is ever-present within them. 
and at no time is it in, is it inactive, whether they perceive it or not. Paul talked about the you know the law in our members, Romans chapter seven. There's a warfare within us. Yes, they are often unconscious of many of its stirrings, for it works silently, secretly, subtly, deceptively, prompting not only to outward acts of disobedience, but producing unbelief, pride, and self-righteousness, which are most offensive to the Holy, Holy One. This enemy in the soul possesses great advantages because its power to rule was unopposed by, all, by us all through our unregeneracy because of its cursed cunning, because of the numerous temptations by which it is excited, and the variety of object upon which it acts. Yet it is our responsibility to keep our hearts with all diligence, to jealously watch over its workings. For the principal part of the fight to which the Christian is called consists of continually resisting the uprisings and solicitations of this evil principle. In other words, to mortify them. And that begins in the mind, in the soul. Nip them in the bud. Don't let them develop into sin. The more carefully the believer observes the many ways in which indwelling sin assails the soul, the more he will realize his need of crying to God for help. Then he may be watchful and faithful in opposing its, lust, opposing its lustings. But alas, we become slack and inattentive to the serpentine windings and, the tripping up, and are tripped up before we are aware of it. This is stupid folly, and it costs us dearly. By our slothfulness, we get a sore wound of in the soul. Our graces drop, our consciousness defiled. Our relish for the word is dulled, and we lag in the performance of duty. Grace cannot thrive while lust is nourished, for the interests of the flesh and of the spirit cannot be promoted at the same time. And, if our corruptions be not resisted and denied, they will, they must flourish. If the daily work of mortifying the flesh be not diligently attended to, sin will most certainly become predominant in its actings in our hearts. If we fail there, we fail everywhere. And John Owen has an excellent illustration in his work on the Holy Spirit, where he talks about the pagan is like somebody swimming downstream. They follow the flesh. They love it. They relish sin. They live for it. The Christian is swimming against the stream. And he constantly has to swim against the stream. For the moment he stops swimming, he starts going downstream. We can never take a vacation from the Christian life. We can never let our guard down. We can never stop watching and praying. We must always be diligent. And the moment we aren't, the moment we start going back backwards down that stream. True. The lustings of the flesh cannot be rendered inactive. But we must refuse to provide them with fuel. Romans 13, 14. Make not provision for the flesh unto the lust thereof. Those lusts cannot be eradicated but they can, by the Spirit's enablement, be refused. There is where the responsibility of Christian comes in. It is his bounden duty to prevent those lusts occupying his thoughts, engaging his affections, and pre prevailing with the will to choose objects which are agreeable to them. Take covetous as an example. A lusting after the empty things of this world. If the mind permits itself to have anxious thoughts for material riches, and the affections to be drawn unto them, and pleasing images are formed in the imagination, the lust has prevailed, and our conduct will be ordered accordingly. An earnest pursuit after corrupt things preys upon the vitals of true spirituality. The preventative for that is to set our affections upon things above, to make Christ our satisfying portion, and having food and raiment therewith we be, will be content. First Timothy 6.8 um, In my experience, uh, in pastoral counseling over the years. 
and you have these people, uh, either a husband or wife, sometimes both, but it's usually one or the other, where there's this uncontrolled spending, this uncontrolled use of credit and getting just in debt to the point of, I, I, I knew one couple, the, the, the guy's wife had $150,000 worth of credit card debt buying just junk, all kinds of junk. It was just junk. And what is that a result of? That's a result of covetousness. The whole modern American economic system of buy now, pay later, that's based on covetousness. If you don't have the money to buy it now, you should just be content and wait till later. You don't have to have a fancy new car if you can't afford it. You don't have to have brand new fancy furniture if you can't afford it. Wait, pay for it when you can afford it. Don't lust after it and go into debt. Paul says, oh, no man, anything. It is very evident that the Christian should spare no pains in seeking to ascertain and be sensibly affected by the real causes of his spiritual decline. For unless he knows from what causes a spiritual decay proceed, he cannot remember, therefore, from whence he has fallen, nor truly repent of the failures, or again do the first things, Revelation 2.5. And unless and until he does those very things, he will deteriorate more and more. It is equally clear that if be certain appointed means, the use of those which promote spiritual growth and prosperity, then the sliding of those means will inevitably hinder that growth. As the first of those means is the mortifying of the flesh, it will be found that slackness at that point is the place where all failure begins. It is sin unmortified and unresisted, yielded to and allowed. And what is still worse, unrepented of and unconfessed, which brings a blight upon the garden of the soul. Sin unmourned and unforsaken in our affections is more heinous and dangerous than the actual commission of sin. And beloved, that's why knowing the word of God and knowing the law of God is so, so important. If you don't know something's a sin, then you're not going to be, how, how are you going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit when you do it, or think about it, or want to do it, or are tempted to do it? You have to know what the scriptures teach so you know when to be convicted and to turn from it. And, and, you know, I remember when I was first a professing Christian, I was Pentecostal. I was, a, you know, charismatic. And uh, they rejected the law. They didn't teach anything about sanctification. And so people were doing all kinds of crazy things, and they weren't even convicted because they had no idea it was even wrong. You have to know the law. Closely connected with the mortifying of sins is the Christians devoting themselves entirely to God. Christian progress is largely determined by continuing as we began, by the measure in which we steadfastly adhere to the surrender we made of ourselves to Christ as our convert, at our conversion and to the vows we took upon, upon us at baptism. If our conversion was a genuine one, then we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we receive Christ as our only Lord and Savior. If our baptism was a scriptural one and the believer entered intelligently into the spiritual import and emblematic purport of the, that ordinance, he then professed to have put off the old man. And as he emerged from the water, as one symbolically risen with Christ, he stood pledged to walk in newness of life. As the adult Israelites were baptized into Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2, accepting him as their lawgiver and leader, so those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians three twenty seven. Having enlisted under his banner, they now wear his uniform. And of course, he's making the reference to Romans chapter 6. And the issue there is that what is the power, the efficacy that gives us regeneration and gives us definitive and then progressive sanctification? Union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. 
When Christ died, you died. When Christ died, you died to sin. When Christ rose, you rose to a new life of obedience. That's the significance of baptism, what it points to. The more consistently the believer acts in harmony with the public profession he made into baptism, the more real progress he will make. Since Christ be the captain of his salvation, he is under bonds to fight against everything opposed to him. For they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15 Each day the saint should renew his consecration unto God and live in the realization that he is not his own, for he has been bought with a price. No longer free to gratify his lusts. The more Christ's purchase of him be kept fresh in his mind, the more resolutely he will conduct the work of mortification. It is forgetfulness that we belong to God and Christ, which makes us slack in resisting what he hates. It is such forgetfulness and slackness that explains the call. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, Revelation 2.5. That is, your dedication to God and your baptismal avowal of identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So just pause for a minute. What should we do every day, first thing in the morning, when we get up, even if you're lying in bed? What's the first thing we should do? Meditate on Christ. Meditate on what Christ has done for you. Meditate on how you should love him with every fiber of your being and dedicate that day and every day to Christ. That's the way you should begin your day. While there be a healthy desire after God and a delighting of ourselves in him, an earnest seeking to please him and the enjoyment of communion with him, there is, a necessar there is necessarily an averseness for sin and a zeal against it. While we have a due sense of our obligations to God, and high valuation of his grace to us in Christ, we continue to find duty present and direct our actions to his glory. But when we become less occupied with his perfections, precepts, and promises, other things steal in, and little by little our hearts are drawn from him. The light of his countenance is no longer enjoyed, and the darkness begins to creep over the soul. Love cools, and gratitude to him wanes, and then the work of mortification becomes irksome, and we shelve it. Our lusts grow more and more unruly and dominant, and the, and the garden of the soul is overrun with weeds. In such a case, we must repent and return to the first works, Revelation 2.5. Contritely confess our sinful failures and rededicate ourselves unto God. Again, if the Christian accords not to the word of God, that honor to which it is so justly entitled, he is certain to be the loser. If the word holds not that place in his affections, thoughts, and daily life, which its author requires, then sad will be the consequences. If the soul be not nourished by this heavenly bread, if the mind not be regulated by its instructions, if the walk be not directed by its precepts, disastrous must be the outcome. We must expect God to hide his face from us if we seek him, not in those ways wherein he has promised to meet with us and bless us, for such a neglect is both a violation of his ordinance and a disregard of our own good. And we think, you know, there's supposedly what, 50, 60 million evangelicals in America, supposedly? And you ask, how in the world can our nation be so darn wicked and the politics so corrupt and satanic? Well, evangelicals don't believe in the law anymore. They don't study the law. Bible study is not... Now, there's some good evangelicals that emphasize this. John MacArthur would be an exception. But most don't emphasize the study of the word. Most don't emphasize the means of grace. Preaching is no longer exegetical and applicatory. It's no longer tied directly to scripture. It's more entertainment with a few you know, cute little psychological sayings. We live in a disastrous time. The church is corrupt and saltless and weak. 
generally speaking. There, there's good Reformed churches out there. And there, there are better evangelicals. But you need to attend a church that focuses on the Word of God and not on entertainment. Uh, the, the church is not a social club. Now, that's where we have fellowship. But it, the purpose of church is to worship God and learn His Word and be sanctified. And fellowship is important, but it's a fellowship in the Word. Continuing. I may spend as much time in reading the, the Bible today as ever before, but am I doing so with a definite and solemn treating with God therein? If not, if my approach be less spiritual, if my motive be less worthy, then the decline has already begun. And I need to beg God to revive me, quicken my appetite, and make me more responsive to his injunctions. Finally, it requires few words here to convince a believer that if there be a decreasing occupation of his heart with Christ, his fine gold will soon become dim. If he ceases to grow in a spiritual knowledge of his Lord and Savior, if he become lax in desiring and seeking real communion with him, if he fails to draw from the fullness of grace which is available for his people, then a blight will fall upon all his graces. Faith in him will weaken. Love for him will abate. Obedience to him slacken. And he will be followed at a greater distance. His own words on this point are too clear to admit of mistake. John 15, 5. He that abideth in me and I in him. Note the order. We, always, we are always the first to make the breach. The same bringeth forth much fruit. His graces are healthy and his life abounds in good works. For, for severed from me, cut off from fellowship, ye can do nothing. John 15, 5. The same things which opposed our first coming to Christ will seek to hinder our cleaving to him. And against those enemies, we must watch and pray. Galatians 5, 6. Faith worketh by love. Since it is with the heart man believeth, Romans 10, 10, saving faith and spiritual love cannot be separated, though they may be distinguished. Faith engages the heart with Christ, and therefore its affections are drawn out into him. Thus faith is a powerful dynamic in the soul, and acts to borrow, uh, to borrow the words of Thomas Chalmers, as, quote, the impulsive power of a new affection. A little child may be amusing itself with some filthy or dangerous object, but present to him a, a luscious pear or peach, and he will speedily relinquish it. The world absorbs the heart and mind of the unregenerate because he is of the world, and so knows not, nothing better. For the Christ of God is a stranger to him, but the regenerate has a new nature, and by faith becomes occupied with him who is the center of heaven's glory. And the more the mind be stayed upon him, the less appeal were the persisting things of time and sense make upon him. It is faith and exercise upon its glorious object with overcome the world. Roman numeral 2. We have pointed out the deep importance of ascertaining the causes from which spiritual decay proceed, decays proceed in order to bring us to a due compliance with the injunctions of Revelation 2.5. We cannot turn from that which is envious and avail ourselves of the remedy until we are conscious of and sensibly affected by those things which we have, which have, ro which have robbed of spiritual health. But let not the young Christian assume a defeatist attitude and conclude that we ere long he too will suffer a decline. That ere long he will suffer a decline. Prevention is better than cure. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. This aspect of the theme should serve a dual purpose. A warning against such a calamity 
and is furnishing instruction for those whose graces have already begun to languish. Thus far, we have dealt only on what will be the inevitable consequences if the believer fails to, to make a diligent and full use of the chief aids to spiritual growth. Now we proceed to point out other things which are among the causes of decline. A slackening in the prayer life will soon lower, lower the level of one's spiritual health. This is so generally recognized among Christians that there is less need for us to say much therein. Prayer is an ordinance of divine appointment being instituted both for God's glory and our good. It is an owning of the supremacy and an acknowledgement of our dependency. On the one hand, the Lord requires us to be waited on, to be asked for those things which will minister under our well-being. And on the other hand, it is by means of prayer that our hearts are prepared to receive or be denied those things which we desire. For it is essentially a holy exercise in which our wills are brought into harmony with the divine. A considerable part of our religious life consists in praying, either in public or in private, either orally or mentally, and our spiritual pr prosperity ever bears a close proportion to the degree of fervor and constancy with which this important duty is attended to. Prayer has been rightly termed the breath of the new creature. And if our breathing be impeded, then the whole system suffers true alike spiritually and morally. And I recommend med meditating on Christ all the time, throughout the day, throughout the whole day, and saying little prayers to Christ throughout the whole day. It's spring. The birds are all singing. We're picking fresh strawberries out of our garden and garlic and all kinds of things. There's much to thank God for throughout the day. We thank God throughout the day. We pray for help throughout the day. We praise God throughout the day. I think I'll stop there. Uh, we'll stop there. And we'll continue this, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the, this wonderful study by Pink. It is very helpful. We thank you, Lord. Cause us to pray more. Cause us to search the scriptures diligently so that we learn which, that which displeases you and that which you like, that which you love. Help us keep our eyes totally focused on Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, recognizing that we died in him and that we live in him. Cause us to be dependent on the Holy Spirit, to walk according to your statutes and ordinances, to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to obey your word, to mortify the flesh, to put off what is displeasing in your sight, and to put on which is righteous and holy. In Jesus' name, amen.